This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former United Airlines CEO and chairman Oscar Munoz discusses his book, Turnaround Time, uniting an airline and its employees in the friendly skies. He speaks about his efforts to revive the company and the future of aviation. He's interviewed by USA Today reporter Zach Wichter. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oscar, thank you so much for being here. And I'm excited to talk about the book for, uh, with you right now. Um, I guess we'll start off kind of at the top. Why write this book and why publish it now? What kind of led you to, you know, to this moment? Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Ag. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I've always, uh, over the course of my journey, I always said that I would never write a book. Uh, I think what changed is, I think COVID, there was a lot of, uh, a little bit of downtime, certainly, as we battle through the CARES Act and the recovery, but also a lot of reflection about the things that were happening in America. You know, we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of social issues going on at the same time where business was crumbling. And so it was, a, it was a good time to reflect on all of these things. And so began to work on a couple of chapters, ran them by a couple of uh, noted authors, uh, particularly the one that is on my foreword, uh, to see what it sounded like. And I got some good support, so kept going. Um, and the publishing now is a function of just time and space as the publishing <laughs> world has, uh, takes, you know, it takes a long time to do these things. But I, I, it's also, I think, hitting at a good time because while the book, as you know, is certainly about the airline industry and United in particular, I think there's also a, a broader message that I hope to convey or hope people will, you know, will get out of it. Kind of a nuanced message towards civility, uh, personal discourse, uh, facts, um, and then some leadership lessons throughout along with a little bit of my heritage and upbringing that I've never really had a chance to share before. So it was, uh, it's been a wonderful journey, and I'm glad it's over. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm always glad to talk about it. So thank you for having me again. Yeah, definitely. And again, thank you for being here. And in that introduction you just gave, you hit on a lot of the topics that I'm hoping to talk to you about today. So really looking forward to this conversation. Before we actually get into the book and some of the specifics there, I wanted to ask you about some recent news. The DOT recently announced a new notice of proposed rulemaking that would require airlines to compensate passengers for delays or cancellations that are in the airline's control. Because it's so recent, I just kind of wanted to go right there. What do you think about that as a former airline CEO? You know, I, I'm in D.C. today and uh, I've heard the same news that you have and I've known that it's been out there and it's been out there for some time. And so I think the first thing I would say is uh, as a customer, all of the people that listen as customers, um, we get it. We get the pain that people feel when they're delayed and delayed significantly. And while we as airline industry professionals have lots of things that we are constantly working on to make your journey not only safe, but certainly on time. Uh, there are broader issues at play, as they always are, that are not necessarily under our control. So um, you, can, you can pretty much rest assured that there's not an airline out there that's looking to have delays that last that time, to be sitting on a tarmac, uh, to be causing you the pain 
that that does it. They, they re, there's no one really wanting to. There's no benefit. There's no reward other than a, a sharp uh, a sharp stick right in your eye kind of thing with the one with that. So we feel the same pain. Um, I think the issue is, is a broader one, and I, I've spoken a lot about this over the course of my tenure as the leader, and I still talk about it today. I think we need uh, to modernize some of the infrastructure that runs uh, you know, airspace, and that is air traffic control systems. The air traffic control we have in America is, in my opinion, not only outdated, possibly obsolete, it's still safe, uh, but you have to really slow everything down in the air to make sure that it indeed is safe, which is the right thing to do. I think there are many, many countries outside of the U.S. that have modernized their systems, and uh, it is one that I think needs to be done here in America. Now, it is not easy to do. It's difficult. It probably requires multiple administrations uh, from a federal level uh, to, to support it, or it some way needs to be privatized. But it is a, a key factor in our broader infrastructure in, as in America, uh, in addition to, obviously, the land infrastructure in our roads and bridges. Yeah. You know, that actually is something that you mentioned in the book. You talk about on your first day as CEO, you walked right into the United headquarters to news reports of a major IT meltdown at the airline. So obviously, these IT issues that you just talked about, modernizing the infrastructure, that sort of thing, has been going on for a long time. Why do you think this continues to be a problem? And kind of how does this actually get addressed? Well, um, for from the airline perspective, I mean, I, you, you mentioned a great point on my first day. And uh, our CIO, they are now our, our chief customer officer. Uh, she has emerged wonderfully. Uh, we started the migration to the cloud way back then. It, it is time-consuming. It costs money, and it requires a lot of focus and effort. And uh, and that journey had to be, you know, had to begin that early. I think the recent uh, issues that you've seen, particularly over the holidays, was as we now know, sort of a lack of investment in that in, in that infrastructure. Um, why it's hard, it's costly, it takes money. And again, back to the air traffic control aspect of that, again, it's not going to be done in a four-year period. It's probably going to take twice, maybe three times as that, and it's going to require the best and brightest in Ameri- that America has to offer with regards to developing that. And, uh, and again, a privatized matter might work. Uh, the government certainly could try to do this. But again, it, it's, all about, it's all about effort, it's all about focus, and it's all about funding. Uh, in everything that you do. And as airline professionals and in speaking for the industry, if I could, uh, I can tell you that by and large, everybody makes every effort. There's a lot of money being spent to make this, uh, make make all of these advancements uh, happy, uh, make all these investments, the right investments that need to be done for the industry. Sure. So turning a little bit more officially to the book now, in the introduction, you talk about hearing passengers complain that they... Um, kind of have a negative view of air travel as you were doing that tour throughout United's network. Why do you think people have a pretty still, I would say, even coming out of the pandemic, still a pretty negative view of air travel generally? And how can that be addressed? You know, uh, perception is reality. So uh, mm-hmm. first of all, as, as, a, as a person that provides that service to you, it is incumbent upon us to make it better, regardless. It's just, you know, the customer is, uh, uh, is right uh, many, many parts of the time. Maybe not all the facts are always there. And so I think, uh, I think why people are upset, uh, because they're missing something that's important. One of the first big things we rolled out at United was this concept of, of understanding through a shared purpose and a shared vision across the corporation of why we did what we did. Of course, you know, we fly aircraft and we get people there from point A to point B, but it's deeper than that, right? It's more about 
uh, understanding that each single person in each each single seat is traveling for something that's really important to them, and and having our frontline folks. These are union folks. These are you know these are salt of the earth. Work really long and hard hours to to bring the service. Um, you know if you if you commoditize, if you if you put too many parameters and rules, it becomes just a job. It isn't. Um, the friendly skies and, and our and our tagline is important. That when you fly, you feel that. And and when you put too much structure and stricture and rules, it becomes just any other thing. And so the the, the point is to make sure that your employees are really engaged in the process of taking care of other uh, of taking care of all the services that we provide. And so. You know, it, it's, it's, it, it doesn't always work. There are many things that happen that are out of control. And so I could go down a long litany, a long list of things from air traffic control to weather. I always kid that Mother Nature is not in our, for all of you that understand the term Rolodex, <laughs> uh, it, it's not someone that, that is employed by us. And so there are many issues that have to be worked and dealt with. And you have really proud professionals that make that happen. Uh, and so... And so I think for me, uh, the the initial wave of input was knowing some of that, but also trying to hear it directly. There's an important part of leadership where if you actually ask someone the question and you listen to them and listen to them intently and then and then lead after you've listened and learned to solve the things that are most important. What we learned at United was the fact that while coffee and our schedule and our aircraft and all of those things were a little bit of an issue, by and large, the most pointed thing was that we had lost, you know, the trust of our own employees. They just didn't want to do the things that we wanted to do. And I think that's one of the critical components of doing that listening and learning thing that I speak about. Yeah. And sticking on this network tour for a second, you said at the top of that last response that perception is everything. And I think that the average traveler probably has a perception of the CEO of an airline as being possibly a little out of touch with many of the people who fly every day. I've always wanted to ask an airline CEO this, so thank you for bearing with me. Did you fly economy when you did that tour mostly? I think it's a combination of that um uh, you know, over the it depends on the uh, depends on where you're going. We at the time still had a lot of the small 50 seater aircraft, which do not have a first class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, a lot of the time, especially late or early in the morning, I would fly up front. Uh, and so it was a combination of those things. Uh, it's you know, it's a it, traveling around um, is is hard, and, and travel is difficult for a lot of people. But when you live in the business and these people that are providing the service are yours, uh, it is so wonderful because uh, I would frankly sit and mostly in an aisle seat so I can get up and talk to the flight attendants, so I can get up and talk to customers, so I can kind of roam around the plane safely, obviously, when we're doing that. So it was important for me uh, not only to, to, to fly and talk to folks, but to do it without a large group of people with me. Um, so the airplane is one thing, but when you hit the airport and its terminals and you go into every deep Byzantine corner and bowels of a, of a great airport, I mean, it's fascinating to see what you see behind it. The rest, the rest areas uh, where people eat, where people sleep and rest. Uh, and, and that's when you get people as, at their most human level. And for me, it was important to have that level of connection. So how I traveled and how I got there was mildly important, was more important when you land and the level of engagement that you have because, you know, we're a 24 by 7 operation. So you want to talk to our tech ops, our maintenance folks. They only come in at night. And obviously aircraft fly during the day mostly and get repaired or needed modifications over the course of the evening. 
So I think the combination, you know, your question was, am I, am, I, am I with the people by flying economy? Not all the time. Uh, was I a, a voice of the people and listening to them by the level of engagement that I did in their workplace at their hours of things? I, I would definitely say I, I was uh, very much focused on that piece more than anything. Sure. Thank you. Um, and you also say in the book at one point that the flying experience is not differentiated enough across airlines. How does that get addressed? What does differentiation look like in an industry with such thin margins? Well, exactly, right? And uh, it, it's, it's so hard to do that. And it's the human element for sure. Uh, you know, we, we had lost all of that. So the friendly skies had become anything but. And the thing that we needed to recover first uh, was certainly that. And, and I think uh, I think we had a lot of success in getting our people behind us. And then on that platform, being able to do a lot of the strategic things. So to your point on differentiation, I think what you're seeing at United anyway, I'm very proud of, of this legacy and the work that's being done. Uh, we are differentiating ourselves by our efforts on sustainability, not in a political way, but on a level of, of, of economics that makes sense for the business and also doing the right thing uh, for the planet uh, alongside of that. I think we're differentiating by the places that we fly. Uh, you've seen United more than any other airline in the world really open up the world with so much flying to so many interesting, great areas and, and hitting at a time when Americans do want to travel. Despite the economic impact, views and concerns, people still want to travel in a lot of places and we're taking quite a bit of advantage of that. And then, of course, you differentiate yourself by how you individually are treated by another human when you travel with us. And that is the most difficult part because there's no way to oversee that, to, to directly sort of gauge how friendly you were, how friendly you weren't. And that comes from engaging the, 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 the heart and, and the mind of your employees, that they're with you, they understand why it's important to be great with customers and friendly and to provide good service that people will come back. So it's all of those factors plus, you know, brand new aircraft with great new things. All of those things can be met. What can't be met necessarily is the human element. And I think that's a big differentiating point that has helped United, you know, regain its status as one of the major top airlines in the world. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that, actually. You wrote in the book that you did a what's right and what's wrong or what's good and what's not good list as you were kind of starting your tenure as CEO. And the first thing that you put at the top of that what's right list was United's people. From my perspective as an airline reporter, that honestly could come off as a little cliche. Airlines love to tout their people. But what does actually set United's people apart and when you came in, there was very low morale among the employees. So how are you able to see through that low morale to what kind of was under the surface at your team and what they could become? Yeah. So to put my comment that you noted in a little bit of context, if I could, mm-hmm. um, I talk about my first travel. I, I am traveling. No one knows that I'm about to become the CEO. Uh, it's you know it's going to be announced the following day. So I'm traveling incognito. And of course, I have one of those hellacious flights it's a, a small 50-seater. It's United Express, not United. Uh, we're late. We're delayed. We have issues, mechanical. I mean, it's just it's a litany of things that, that were going wrong that day. And the way I, I, I describe it is over the course of the, uh, the, the my sitting there, I'm writing all of these things down. Why don't we do this? Why can't we do this? Why can't we communicate to our, to our customers why things are being delayed? So I'm writing all this stuff as to kind of a what's wrong column. But throughout all of that, what I observed in this small plane with one, you know, a human, a woman 
uh, that was uh, there was the flight attendant uh, watching her soothe, calm, provide a level of humanity and kindness to everyone that was concerned with connections and delays, even if she didn't have the answer. And that's what prompted me to say what what you might, what somebody might term as cliche, is the fact that indeed. You know, it's like it's not everything that was what's wrong, but it's, you know, what is right. And that was the first thing I put it right. And so that gave me the impetus to your question to say, OK, uh, I just saw if I had 50,000 more people like her every day doing that sort of thing, I think the perception of our service and our value, despite a lot of things, would be more positive. And so um, uh, as I asked her a couple of questions, she didn't know who I was. Uh, she was very nice to answer the things she knew and the things she didn't. And that sort of me sort of began to get the inkling that it would be important for me to go out and listen to all of those people, all of the, all the people like her. And, and that's what prompted me to go out there. And it's also what gave me a lot of the insights of what became our real first initiative was to regain the trust of our employees first before we could do anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. But I do want to kind of go back to the, another part of the question, which was that low morale that you came into. And again, how did you see through the low morale and kind of what what were the steps that you took to boost that morale? Uh, so I have a, a background and that I've learned over my experience. It's also my part of my heritage as a Latino uh, um, that that family is everything. I mean, we use the term familia in, in Spanish, uh, and it just it, it really it really envelops a broader sort of emotional connection with folks. So I've always been luckily enough uh, through my formative years to have been taught the you know the the genuine uh, need for connection with other people and to really truly listen, and 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 also to sense. There's some things that you can't get over Zoom or a camera or from a, a pulpit where you're making speeches to large audiences, and that is that human connection. When somebody uh, holds your hand just a little longer, looks in your eye with a sense of potentially, without being dramatic, a little despair. And when I first made my travels around our hubs, I could feel a little bit of that emotion, just a, a, you know, a slightly longer handshake, a little tugging on the coat. Um, and that was... a. Uh, that was my sense that there was something wasn't. Now, this is a time when people are taking pictures, everybody's smiling, and everybody's happy to have a new leader. Uh, but at the same time, I could sense something. So that's that's when I knew there was something going on. And then I think my first uh, my first big news article with the journal, uh, where they asked me the question, yeah, so in your short time, what have you seen? I said, I find the fact that our employee base is disillusioned, disengaged, and disenfranchised. And I'm embarrassed to say that as a former board member, we didn't see that. And so I was very, very focused and transparent with what I was seeing. So that's what I saw. The, the fixing part, of course, always takes time. But my first instinct was to go and listen and learn from all of them. Bring them in as part of the solution. Tell me what's spoken. Tell me what you think needs to be fixed. And, of course, I got thousands and thousands of, 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 of levels of input from so many people over the course of my travels, which can get a little confusing. And, and so what, what culminated uh, that initiative was I'm traveling back to Chicago and I have so much data and information from so many sources and in a turnaround situation, what you start with first is really key to the potential success of the turnaround because there's many things to fix, right? And, and so I had many things to fix and I had learned even more in my travels, um, but I had accomplished a couple of things. I had engaged a lot of humans in a conversation where they felt 
or be or beginning to feel as part of the solution or that they will at least be an included in what might be done. Always clear I was to make sure that it's like not everything you tell me is what we're going to do because that's <laughs> not the case. Um, but nevertheless, everything's going to get put into a hopper. And from that, we're going to clean something. So that was the bright sort of strategic idea uh, from a real, <laughs> you know, from a real practical perspective. I was getting inundated with information and data and I was beginning to worry about okay you've promised everyone that you're going to come back from this trip and have you know the thing you're going to do or suggest and I was worried and and that fateful trip from Denver to Chicago uh, with one of our flight attendants Amy Sue is is her name I went up to just say hello to her and to ask my question like I was just asking things like hey you know how's it going or anything you can share with me it wasn't there weren't deeply analytical questions and uh, again, similar to the, the feeling and sense that I had when I was traveling earlier with the you know, holding of a handshake longer, et cetera, she, she seemed uh, quite emotional. Her face was just looking to burst with, with something, but also at the same time was in a place where it's like, I'm not going to waste my breath. You're one of many. I think we've had five or six, I forget how many CEOs before me in the last decade, so you can imagine a person that works every day who has all these different leaders coming and going. It's like, I don't want to waste my time with this. And so I, I gently touched her arm and said, well, listen, I'm sitting over here if you want anything. And it's kind of when she pulled her hand back and in a very emotional, uh, tearful way said, Oscar, I'm just tired of always having to say I'm sorry. And for me, as I reflected on that very quickly, it was the magic moment, it was the seminal moment in the sense that God, imagine going to work every day for many years, always having to apologize. Hey, I'm sorry the coffee's not well. I'm sorry you're late. I'm sorry you can't do this. And you have absolutely zero to do with any of those policies or decisions. And it's how we got folks disillusioned, disengaged, and disenfranchised. Just over time, they just grow weary of that. And I, had, I was beginning to have a sense that I, I think the first thing is to regain the, you know, the trust of our employees. Now, I would have to go socialize this with the world, knowing there would be tons, tons of incoming fire on, wait a second, you're going to do stuff for your employees? What about your customers? What about your investors? And there's a many constituents in this. So I had to do a lot of socializing uh, in order to do that. But things would get in the way, uh, things like my health, for instance. <laughs> sure. And, you know, it's actually, I didn't want to go too far without turning to that because you dedicate a lot of time in the book to talking about your health. And I really want to give you a, a minute to talk about that. Um, what is your message, especially on heart health? Um, uh, it's simple. It is the largest, it's the single largest killer in America by far, by far. I mean, more than half the deaths in America. So cancer, all those awful diseases. Unfortunately, uh, heart disease is the, the main killer. Why? The symptoms of a heart attack are many and varied. It is not a, oh my God, it's the big one and you hold your chest. Uh, there's just so many different flows as blood gets blocked, either heading up, uh, up north or south of the heart, and it can have so many different symptoms. Uh, a. B, you don't always know that those symptoms are serious because you just feel a little off or a little weird. And a lot of us, men in particular, will tend to you know, sit down, lay down, jump in the shower, just sort of blow it off. Uh, and unfortunately, with, with, you know, the blockage of blood to your external, to your extremities and your, your vital organs, um, that is often a, a bad decision. So if you do lay down, you may not, you know, you may not wake up from that. And, and so that's, I think, the message. The, the PSA, if you will, and I got this from a, a real close friend of mine who's a cardiologist, who one day 
uh, said, you know, if you ever feel weird, call 911. And all the worst you can be is a little embarrassed that you had indigestion or something, uh, which made sense uh, to a degree. So I offer that advice. Mm-hmm. Secondly, what he added, which was perfect, uh, perfectly suited to my survival, he says, and when you call 911, immediately tell them where you are, which, like, duh, right? It makes sense. But then he added a very dramatic piece of like, immediately tell them where you are because you may not make it past the phone call. And I remember when I, where I was and when I, I heard him say that, I remember thinking, okay, that's a little dramatic. But you know what? Fast forward a couple of years. I've just come in from a run. I'm a, I've, I've turned vegan. I, you know, I'm a, a good weekend athlete. I'm not overly fit necessarily. But I hear my phone buzz across the room. And as I go to get it, uh, I feel my legs kind of weak. And then I kind of crumble to my knees and I felt a little clammy. And my immediate thought was that comment. Okay, that feels weird. So I immediately crawled to the landline. Uh, some of you that are listening and watching may remember what that is. Uh, and called 911 and immediately told them where they were. Because I was on the 50th floor of a you know, Chicago high-rise. The GPS on my cell phone uh, might have taken a little too long to come to get me. So I crawled back to the front door, uh, let the EMTs in. And within 37 minutes, I was on life support. Life support being a heart lung, artificial heart-lung <clears throat> machine and on a medically induced coma. Uh, and did I have an extra five minutes or 20 minutes? I don't know, but I am thankful that I was able to get uh, into that situation as quickly as I could. Yeah. And you wrote in the book that kind of in those early hours, you really needed to keep it under wraps from the public and from most of the people at United. What did everyone think was going on that day? You missed a lot of important meetings, coincidentally. Well, on a, on a, on a amusing sidebar, uh, the, as the story goes from my doctors and nurses that uh, were there when, I, when they received me. I don't remember much of this. I was relatively coherent in providing information about, you know, uh, numbers uh, and, and information for people uh, to contact. And, but I also kept muttering, they tell me something under my breath, and, and that, that something was, I don't have time for this. I don't have time <laughs> for this. Uh, I had a big, all the union leaders were coming in. I was interviewing a CFO candidate. I mean, again, I've been on the road listening and had all those things uh, sort of to work through. Uh, and so it was a, it was a busy time. And, and um, because of, of medical privacy, uh, I was I was you know, I was uh, I went into the hospital under an assumed name uh, to sort of hide it from the media because the media was everywhere. As soon as they I think it got leaked uh, over the course of the day and the rumors began to fly. And, our, you know, our corporate folks did not know or were not aware of what was happening uh, because my family was still incoming. I was obviously in a coma by this time. So there was a lot of moving parts uh, to that. And so uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about that in the book of sort of the drama that surrounded that first day because I disappeared. And you know, what happens when your CEO just doesn't show up? Uh, and so there was a lot of scramble to get that. But you know, quickly the company got into a mode. Uh, they learned a little bit more about my situation. And then we did all the right things to announce an interim CEO as it's required. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, certainly dramatic moments in those early days. Yeah. And you also talked in the book about your relationship with one of the flight attendants, Fernando, who you met in the hospital. Can you just talk a little bit more about what that relationship meant to you? You know, um, a broader message to everyone. We all know someone that's been afflicted with a disease or an illness. They may be in the hospital. They may be at home. And so many of us are so well-intentioned. You know, oh, my God, I should write Bill or I should send something to Mary or her family and then we're like, we say, oh, you know, we don't want to bother them and all that. Don't do that. 
If somebody means something to you, send them a note. It can be a text. It can be a scribble. It doesn't have to be anything. As someone that was afflicted and sitting those long nights, lonely, depressing nights in a hospital, every word, every message, every small gift, however, uh, was received, was incredibly, incredibly supportive of my mental health and, and, and increasingly my, mental, my, uh, my uh, physical health. And so, you know, the, the, I'm sorry, I've forgotten part of the question. I'm oh, sorry. no. I, yeah, I was asking you about your relationship with Fernando, the flight yes. attendant who you met in the hospital. So uh, to, to that end, uh, as I was uh, getting uh, slightly better and, and had stabilized, had come out of my coma and was in the hospital, and I had learned that I would require a transplant, and I was fighting that, of course, but uh, realizing that I had to do that, um, I had a couple of visitors that had had heart transplants to come in just to say hello. And it was, I remember one person in particular, his name is Jim, who came in and he looked so dang happy and fit and live. And I'm like, I hate you. I want to be like you. <laughs> but again, if a transplant's going to do that for me, let's do that. So that, that, you know, that physical sort of connection with somebody that, that's been through it was really important for me to see because it's daunting. You know, like you're going to take my heart out and put another one in? Uh, it's like, that's not a good plan in my mind necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. And so in the world of sort of, you know, paying it forward, to use a, a, a term, uh, I learned over the course of my stay at the hospital that there was another individual in an earlier stage of heart disease that, that was going, had had a massive heart attack and kind of in similar condition and would be waiting for a transplant as well, um, who just happened to be a flight attendant at United, who just happened to be a fellow Latino, uh, and when somebody came in and kind of, no, they didn't want to bother me and say, hey, there's another person. And as soon as I heard the fact that he was a United family member, I was like, let's go. Come on, let's get out. Let's get over there. Um, and it was, a, uh, it, was a, it was a, you know, uh, again, two Latinos facing the same, the same issues, if you will, uh, coming together in a hospital room with all the, the uh, emotion and drama uh, they said, uh, I remember them saying, it's like, well, we're just, you know, we're going to go and we'll spend five minutes. And I remember laughing. It's like, this ain't going to take five minutes. This is going to be a, a much longer conversation. And sure enough, as soon as I walked in, uh, Fernando was there with his uh, a close friend and his partner. And uh, the emotion that erupted just from seeing each other was amazing. And, and, I, and I think it helped him. Uh, the, the, the sad end to that uh, conversation, as you know from reading, Zach, is that he never got his heart. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he waited and waited, and again, uh, which makes, again, my story so incredibly blessed, and that a fact that I did wait only for a couple of weeks and only to find out about my heart on my actual birthday, on the morning of my birthday. So um, the, the blessings and fortune that I have are many and varied, and you asked earlier why I wrote the book. I think part of it is just to let a lot of that gratitude out, because I feel it every day. Yeah. And you wrote also in the book that United's people, not just Fernando, not just their immediate kind of core of executives, but the team in general was as responsible as, as anyone else for your recovery. That's what you said in the book. Can you talk more about the role that the entire United um, team, that the entire company played in your recovery? Well, you know, I, I mentioned it briefly with all the outpouring of affection and the cards and everything that was sent. Uh, that just confirmed what I had learned in my listening uh, tour, that the people of United uh, were like family and had begun to embrace me, uh, not as an outsider, but as someone 
that they could trust to lead them out of you know the wandering nomads that we were in this desert and and so i i think um the, their level of engagement and support on not just this but many other occurrences over the course of my tenure uh they 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 i do not take care of you i do not fly you i do not serve you meals uh, i don't i don't i'm not uh, i'm not you know uh, taking care of your bag uh, any of those things uh, they are and they do it in a wonderful level of of professionalism and pride and it was important for me to say that in the book a lot and it's probably <laughs> It's probably a really long love letter to, to United Employees. Uh, but my hope is that when people read it, they'll understand what happens behind the scenes, understand the people that actually do that work every day and such difficult aspects. And I talk a lot about this where, you know, employees come to work on time because, you know, they're, they're still to be there in time. Many of them don't know when they're going home because we don't know what the situations are going to be. And we're so focused on getting you where you need to be that people will work very long hours, uh, certainly uncertain hours, and they can't tell their family that they'll be home at X amount of time because they can never really guarantee it. And so uh, I think the, the employee, uh, my, my, my uh, I, I say, you know, at the end of the book um, that you know, I came to change United, but at the end, United and its people changed me as I really began to appreciate all that they do and how well they do it. Yeah. And sticking on the question of your recovery for a second, why do you think United's people were so invested in you, not just as their boss, but as a person, you know, to give you that outpouring of support? Not everyone would do that for the CEO of their company. Why do you think you had that from them? No, I would attribute it to my listening tour. Um, You know, it started with the letter that that was sent out to employees when I was announced. Uh, the first letter that was drafted for me and sent for my sort of approval and review was kind of the corporate pavlum, right? Uh, it didn't say anything. And me understanding, a little bit by being on the board, but knowing that we had had just lots of turmoil, we had a you know, merger that wasn't going well, many leaders over the course of, the, again, the last decade, uh, and that if somebody else knew was coming, it had to sound different. And so, again, I took pen to paper and wrote, what I thought was a much more personal note, um, giving them an insight as to who I am as a human and what I would be doing. Not in a, uh, gee, I hope to you know, hear from you. And I was like, no, it was, I wrote it, I think, in a way that connected with a lot of people. That people begin to say, hmm, not only does he have a last name that sounds different than everyone else we've had, um, not only does he, but he also sounds and we'll wait to see if indeed he acts differently. And so uh, I, think, I think a part of that initially was that. And then it's a something I call proof, not promise. So the letter was wonderful and it connected with people, but it promised a lot of things. So what are you going to do and when are you going to do it? So me going on the road immediately and talking with people at the absolute most front level of our organization on a one-on-one basis, one-on-two. We don't have factory floors at an industry, right? There's not a place where you see more than a few people at any point in time because everyone's constantly working. So a few are taking a break at different times. So... So uh, making that connection over the course of, of my, my early time there to really engage, really listen, that word traveled fast. And it, um, I think it resonated with many people that indeed I was looking to do something differently. Now, mind you, there was a lot of pushback. And I describe a couple of the more dramatic and emotional moments where you're sitting there in front of a few hundred uh, you know, tech ops maintenance folks in a hangar. And uh, they're angry. They don't have a contract. They haven't had a contract for a while. 
I don't think anything's going right. We've got split decisions on how we maintain aircraft between the way United did it and the way Continental did it. And so my, you know, their job every day is miserable and filled with all sorts of acrimony and distrust and no compensation vis-a-vis the rest of the industry. So understandably upset, but being able to stand there and listen and, and get them to provide me what I would say, I need actionable items. You can yell and scream at me all you want. You can tell me to fire everyone. Um, none of that is actually actionable. Give me something more tangible. What is it that I can help lead and move forward? And so it was a lot of those conversations, Zach, that I think uh, resonated. And then, and then the fact that I got sick uh, in such you know, it was 37 days into my job when I had that, that heart attack, uh, I think all of the combination of those and the outreach and everyone talking about my level of engagement probably had a lot to do with why they were so supportive of me. Yeah. And you had, I would say, a pretty turbulent five years at United, and it wasn't all in your control. I mean, you were bookended by your heart attack and by COVID. There was the Dr. Dow incident in the middle. It was hardly smooth sailing over the course (laughs) of your tenure as CEO. How did you stay on track through all of those upheavals? Uh, Well, um, the airline industry is turbulent by its very nature, Uh, economic forces, uh, you know, 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 COVID. I mean, 90 Three percent of our revenue disappeared within a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it doesn't get more turbulent than that for a business. <laughs> I think um, for all of us that lead, and it's, so it's not, I think, specific to me. I mean, we do have a mission, we have a view, and and we have a level of engagement and connection with our, our people. And um, and you learn by mistakes. Sometimes you mentioned Dr. Dow, probably my one of my bigger mistakes, and from a communication perspective. Uh, but you fought through that. You rectify it. I always say it's never too late to do the right thing. Um, and so you fight through those crises of your own doing, through crises that are, you're not, you're, that are not your doing. COVID is probably a good example. Um, again, you take care of your folks as well as you can. You lobby. I'm in D.C. today. You lobby in D.C. for all the level of, of help that was required to maintain an airline working. And so you just stay focused. And, and above all, you have a great group of leadership that supports you and is really knowledgeable and focused and aligned, and you have a working group of people that say, hey, I trust that these leaders are going to take care of things. And again, back to the regaining the trust of our employees at the start, and it was such an important platform for everything we did. I can guarantee that United would not be in its situation that it is today, thriving and growing and looking for the future. Um, It would have been a much more difficult route uh, during COVID had they not trusted in their leadership. Because we had to make some really tough decisions and count on them to trust us to do the right thing. Yeah. You said earlier um, that one of the ways that United sets itself apart from some of its competitors is its commitment to sustainability. And you wrote in the book that you see corporations as having uh, a responsibility to, quote, persistently and ethically address large global issues. And I wanted to ask you about that. Why do you see kind of sustainability as as United's big issue that it's positioned to address? And what are some of the other things that United, other airlines, other large companies are in a position to tackle. Yeah. Uh, you know, so first and foremost, we, we've become a bit of a divided world where everything is either left or right oriented or politically motivated or personal agenda. Um, we burn as an industry worldwide close to 100 billion gallons of jet fuel. <laughs> Should we not have a level of responsibility and awareness that 
the impact of that on this planet is not insignificant. We can debate climate change and everyone has their viewpoints and again, politically charged. But if indeed you believe that this level of carbon emission has an impact, um, you know, you ask yourself, can you do something about it? And of course, we can all we can do something. The real question is, will you do something about it? And again, given the nature of our business and the level of carbon emissions we put, it's just a matter of time before something is going to break in our system. So we should begin to plan ahead and think of what the future might be. And so sustainable aviation fuel is, is a great example for a couple of reasons. Yes, it's, it's, it's better for the planet, but the way we began, and I began to really uh, somewhat, some, somehow coerce even uh, some of our leaders around the world in the, sea, in, in the industry, airline industry, is the economic benefit. So not talking about social issues or political issues, but the fact that fuel on the P&L of an airline is one of the biggest line items, one or two, besides labor, and more importantly, it's volatile. Fuel goes up and fuel goes down. And guess what our equity is doing over the course of that time? The complete inverse. So fuel, fuel spikes up, airline industry stocks go down. It is so volatile that it makes our industry, while not, not investable, it's not as investable as others because there's just so much uncertainty. You can run a perfectly wonderful, great airline, but you know fuel spikes and your stock goes down with everyone else. So think of the concept of sustainable aviation fuel, not only as being good for the planet, but think of it as a consistent, non-volatile pricing model with regards to one of your biggest cost inputs. Think of the value on your equity if investors didn't have to worry about the volatility of stock price. And that began to resonate as a business discussion and an economic one rather than a social one because it makes all the sense in the world. And in a world of, of, of market forces, right, which are very efficient, if indeed the airline industry as a whole begins to create a demand for some type of sustainable aviation fuel, the supply side will happen, right? Industries, economies, startups. I mean, this is a man-made problem, and it can be fixed by, by, by men as well. I think JFK said that a long time ago, and we think that's good. So, but somebody's got to push for it. It's the concept. Can you do something, and will you do something about it? And so that's an issue that we, you know, that we took on early on. Um, my successor is com- just as... I would I would put United Airlines as not just the best airline in that space. We could be one of the top companies in the world leading through sequestration, through the, the, the investment in sustainable vehicles in the future and fuel and all the investments they're making. So it's an important part. It's, it's business oriented and it also helps the, the, the planet. And so you can be you can be principled and profitable at the same time would be my adage. Right. And you wrote more broadly in the book about the need for a more general, sustainable travel revolution. And what does that mean beyond just sustainable aviation fuel? I mean, I think, for example, of United's partner Lufthansa that has an investment in the German railway service where they can sell through ticketing on a mixed itinerary. I mean, does it look like United investing in high-speed rail in the U.S.? What does a sustainable travel revolution across the board actually mean? You know, um, I, I think, uh, you know, integration in the business uh, horizontally and vertically is something that, um, you know, that's been done for ages. Uh, I, I think a, a couple of things specific to rail, high speed rail, it is yet another one of those societal slash political slash funding issues that, um, you know, people don't travel on trains in the U.S. It's very accepted in Europe, as you know, but we've not gotten there. And the, you know, the, the, the amount of cost 
uh, that is going to be required to do that at some point in time is not. So I, I don't know that I would uh, I would support a move into another industry of that with all of all of its own issues. I think we have plenty to do inside of our inside of the airline. And I think the focus uh, for the airline industry is to move towards more sustainable. So electric planes, electric flying cars, we call them EVTOL, electric vertical takeoff and landing. Um, uh, there's a company called Boom. Uh, so Archer is a big EVTOL company that I'm associated with. Uh, there's Boom Supersonic, which Supersonic is coming back and a more customer friendly, safer, sustainable and comfortable sort of approach. So I, I think uh, United is, continues to sort of delve into investing in this sustainable world of fuel and vehicles to do that, along with, you know, wonderful things for your convenience. I think the level of, uh, of uh, information and, and, um, um, and entertainment that you have on board will happen. Uh, food and coffee will continue to be refined. It's not easy to, food, to serve really perfect food that everybody wants on every single flight. And we, you know, we keep pushing the envelope on that as well towards the positive end. Yeah, I know that's something that United is still kind of criticized for. People say that their catering has a ways to go to catch up. I mean, what, what, are, what are kind of the barriers there? Uh, you know, it's, it's logistics. It's people's taste. It's, it's so many different things. Um, we, we, had, uh, we had our own kitchens, uh, and we we're probably the only U.S. airline for a while to do that. And I was very proud of that. I was very proud of the work that we did because we, United Employees, put this food together for you in a lot of cases. But, you know, to a lot of it, different issues, uh, unionization of those, we've had to sort of begin to outsource some of that. So part of it is economics and, and just business dynamics that, that force you to go to a different person. Uh, logistically, it's very difficult. Taste is very difficult. I think you've seen the apps roll out that, you know, allow you to choose of a various, a broad array of meals. Um, and again, you're working in a very confined space at you know 35,000 feet. So all of those things just don't make for a really good avenue to serve really good food. Um, and so, in addition to trying to improve the onboard experience at United, you've seen us build out our clubs. Uh, if you travel with us frequently, you've seen all our all our clubs at airports being updated, uh, the food being improved there. Uh, we've had spent a lot, a lot of money doing that, um, so that people can enjoy themselves, relax. Maybe get a meal before they get on the aircraft if they don't really you know, want to wait for choosing that. So there's many ways to skin the cat. There's many issues with why quality is difficult. Um, but people are trying, and tastes are different, and things are, are, are just not, not uh, you know, it, it's a constrained space. And so, but the journey continues. You talked earlier about uh, connecting with people during your tour in part because you came from similar backgrounds as a lot of the employees who you were meeting out in the network. Can you talk about how your upbringing and how your personal background kind of positioned you to lead the airline at the time that you were there, both because I know you come from a strong union family and also because you're a Latino and many of the people who work for you are, so that was different to see someone like you at the top. Yeah, um it's a special moment, honestly. Um, and again, people that are not, they're not in minority you know, uh, cohorts, uh, it's often hard for, for people to understand what it means for a person of your same heritage to see another person of, uh, of their heritage in a position of authority, of leadership. Uh, it, is, uh, it is heartwarming. It is tear-jerking the level of response I would get when I went to a lot of our facilities because of what you just said. There was a, a shared her heritage there 
that just made it differently. And it's like not many people that work those jobs get a chance to see someone that looks like them, speaks like them, understands their culture uh, to do that. So uh, we use a term called orgulloso in Spanish, which is, uh, you know, just I think people are just genuinely so warmed that someone like me could be in the role that I have. Um, and so that, I think, clearly helped. And, and again, I think throughout the book, you see the sprinkles of, uh, I think, the importance of my heritage and my upbringing on a lot of the decisions that I had to make over the course of my tenure. Um, the listening and learning, the connecting with people is certainly one of them. You know, I speak about my maternal grandmother, who I spent, you know, a good eight years of my life traveling around the countryside of Mexico uh, while I waited to reconnect with my mother, who was in the States by then. Um, and, and uh, you know, her work ethic, uh, our ability to go from home to home, to meet with people that were distant, um, you know, uh, familia. And the word familia is, is, just has a deeper resonance in the Latin language. And, and family have, means a lot of wonderful things in the U.S. as well. But it just, you know, there's just something about the, the, the Latin view of it that really is warm and accepting and embracing of, of different views. And so that helped me. Uh, my grandmother's work ethic was she worked till she was 86. And then uh, she ended up at a, as a maid at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas. And, you know, on her retirement, they, she was named to the Hall of Fame of employees and her plaque still exists. And I, you know, when I get a chance and I go by there, I get to see that. And so that kind of example, you know, my concept of proof, not promise, my grandmother did nothing ever but deliver on the proof of hard work, caring for others, never complaining, never blaming someone else. Uh, and all of that upbringing is part of my heritage for sure, but part of her and many of my other family members as well. And I think that really helped uh, as I entered a very fractured again, disengaged organization that was looking for something. I think in me they found someone that was um, they were willing to listen and, and genuinely desirous of their input. Great. Thank you. Um, turning to COVID for a second, you said before that United ultimately realized a 93% drop in demand. How did the airline or any airline um, survive and ultimately come to recover? Um, it was a it was a mad scramble. Uh, I, I'm, it's pretty fair to say that we at United were the first ones to really recognize the potential impact. Um, I was on the cover of the New York Times uh, shortly after a meeting at the White House uh, with uh, President Trump and Vice President Pence and all the organization, where uh, my arms are literally open like this, where I'm telling the story of a we've seen North Italy completely devoid of anybody traveling or anybody booking a ticket. And this is when there was a weekend when South Korea had, a, had, a, had an outbreak as well as North uh, Italy. And, um, and Italy's a lot closer to the U.S. than Korea. And so that proximate nature just couldn't help but think that if indeed it's, an, you know, we didn't know what the disease was, but if indeed it's airborne or foodborne or whatever, um, we were gonna, it was going to hit you know, the, the, the borders of the U.S. quickly. And so we... We began to quickly assess what that impact might be. So the financial aspect of, hey, what if, you know, we, we've seen models before. 9-11 was a situation where, you know, completely shut down of air travel. That only lasted a few months. Uh, we had no idea how long this would last. We had no idea what level it would go. So we began to do math. Um, and you ask questions how you survive is you do the math. How long can you go before you're bankrupt? 
And so our, our great finance team did some work at a 25% drop, at a 50% drop. And I remember a conversation about taking it all the way up to 75. And as we said, it went to 93. And, you know, all of us, uh, me spending time with the CEOs here in the United States, talking about the potential impact that that could be. We started early. We went to the debt market very quickly. We shut down all our capital projects. And we began to sort of, you know, tighten everything and wait for this coming storm that we didn't know what nature or what level it would take. And so, you know, we survived by getting a little bit ahead of it, but so did the others quickly following. And then, you know, we worked hard here in D.C. to get the CARES Act passed. And a lot of people still, even then, would term it as a, as a bailout similar to the auto industry. Uh, if you look at the facts, the airline industry was had never been in a better financial position than early in 2020. At United, we had just delivered our three-year projections that everyone doubted, by the way. We had just delivered them a year in advance, and we're getting ready to, to sort of begin to project uh, the next three years. So we weren't in a better place, but you know, we got hit by something that's, that's completely out of our control, the level of impact that we've discussed. And so we were able to convince and work with the government uh, to get us enough money to keep our people working. Why is that important? If you want the economy to return, you need business and commerce to return. In order to have business and commerce, you have to have people flying. And you can't do that without an airline. And if we, as an airline, shut down and furlough all our people, you just don't bring them back in a week or a month. Uh, pilots need to constantly fly to be certified. So if you, t- if you send them home, you have to spend a lot of time certifying. There's all sorts of safety aspects of that. Badging at airports, there's a host of things that... If you shut down the industry and you want to return the economy quickly, those things were just counter uh, opposed to each other. And, and so we made that effective uh, sort of conversation and negotiation and painfully did receive painfully uh, because to this day, you know, the constraints on the airline industry, its compensation of executives, things you can do from a financial perspective are all still continue to be restricted. So it was not a handout and it was not a bailout. But I think to your, to your answer, I think the ability to keep everyone working as demand began to slowly recover, um, not only did it help the industry, but I think, I ha- I think it helped the economy in the United States begin to, to, to regain. Um, I always talk about the small business folks in America, even during COVID. And if you ask anybody that owns a small business, you know, the, the, you know, you just corporations have a lot of wherewithal and can kind of go work from home and do all of those different things. But the people that really drive our economy, and the, these are the small business owners that hustle every day. They can't afford to stay home. They have to go visit their customers. They have to go make their product. And those are the people that need sort of the ability to get there in the world of transportation. So all of those arguments were made time and time again. And thankfully, the administration was willing to pass, uh, and, and obviously Congress, to pass all of that for us. Uh, in the book, you know, you talk a, a lot about different stakeholders. There are the passengers, there are your employees, there are the shareholders for the company. If you had to pick just one, and I am going to make you pick one, which of those stakeholders takes priority and why? Well, I, again, the history of the United Turnaround was taking the priority for, for our employees because we could, not, we could not have done anything we've done without their complete uh, support and buy-in. Um, and, and, and today... If you were asked me the same question, I think I would answer it the same way. Um, it's the people that deliver the service. In a, in a, you know, it's a decentralized workplace. It's literally an individual. He or she has to be wanting to do the right thing for the right reasons for our customers. 
and you have to you have to really you can't force them to do that you can't demand that they do that uh, there's a, something I call discretionary effort that we all have you know of how hard we work out how, how big our effort is um, if you get people's heart and minds behind it you can do that so uh, to this day my admonition to everybody in the industry is don't lose your people United lost its people and look how difficult that was to climb out of that if you lose your people again it may not necessarily work to get them out of there again out of those doldrums Thanks. And again, Oscar, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Everyone, go read Turnaround Time. There are so many questions I didn't get to ask you. Uh, I wish we had more time, but I just want to thank you for writing the book and for sitting down with me to answer these questions Thank you, Zach. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 